Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding, Interview Edition, recorded Tuesday, September 8th, 2015. This is Paul Koska, owner of Brick and Brack Games, and I am your host for tonight's episode of the Game of Crowdfunding. A quick shout-out to Michael Mendez, who supports all us geeks over on Patreon. Thanks so much, Michael. You rock our socks. If you'd like a shout-out, too, make sure to check out our Patreon page. There should be a link in the show notes. And now... On to the interview. And who is joining me this evening on Skype? Hi, I'm Jeff from Cosmic Wombat Games. And this is Nathan, also from Cosmic Wombat Games. And if I'm correct, you share a last name. Yes, you are brothers? Correct. That is correct. And you somehow run a business without bloodshed? Um, well, we, we run a business, I'm not sure I could say fully without bloodshed. <laughs> no, we, we do pretty well together. We, we have had some, some disagreements, but we always seem to work them out. Correct, yeah. There have, been, there have definitely been some, some heated moments, but uh, it always works out for the better in the end. So, I am impressed. I, I can't even call my family without bloodshed. So, so that's, that's one mark. It's already impressive for me. Now... Jeff and Nathan and Cosmic Wombat Games have an upcoming Kickstarter, and we will talk about that here in a little bit. But first, we have to open the uh, the suitcase here and get out the uh, the Jeff King patented warm up questions. Nice. And the first one, and we'll just address every question. Will go to both of you. First off, when you're not making games, what? do you do for a living? Well, um, this is Jeff. I do, I'm an engineer. I work at a uh, U.S. Air Force base um, doing, basically it's like space traffic control. So I keep satellites from running into each other. That's friggin' awesome. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I always joke with people, my brother is literally a rocket scientist, so it's good times. Uh, <laughs> Are you like the, yeah, the janitor? Yeah. What's that? Are you like the janitor where he works? Bitter yes. No. Uh, yes, I'm the janitor. I hold all the keys. Um, no, this is Nathan. Um, I, uh, I work in IT. Um, I've had I've worked in just about every facet of IT. Started out as a programmer. Worked in uh, desktop support, asset management, systems admin. Was an instructor, and currently, um, I'm actually uh, working the networking. Uh, I actually work at the Indianapolis Convention Center, which is you know where Gen Con is held. So I actually work at that building, so it's kind of interesting. Um, so just handle a lot of the uh, all the networking aspects for that in the stadium. So it's been a it's been a good uh, opportunity. Do you get Do you get to go to Gen Con? I did actually. I, I was able to uh, go to Gen Con. So my my quote unquote vacation was at the same location where I worked. So that was kind of <laughs> awkward, but you know, hey, it was Gen Con. It worked. That would be really sad for most people. Well, it's time for vacation. Go back to work. <laughs> yes, indeed. It did have some nice benefits, though, because like if I needed to like store stuff temporarily, I could just stuff some stuff in my uh, in my cubicle or whatever, and it was all good. So more swag, more swag. I like it. Um, Jeff always likes to say this is uh, Jeff King. Um, always likes to say that every every person who comes on is either in IT or a teacher. And I keep on getting guests that do really random things. So we have IT, and then we have air traffic control for satellites. So I, I <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, I was I was an IT teacher, so it's kind of doubles up. It works. Oh out. man, that makes up for everything. We're back on the level now. Then see, there, there you go. I got to pick up the slack for him. See, yeah, yeah. We don't want any rocket scientists around here. Get that shit out of here. I mean, come on. Jeez, God. All right. Um. The next question is, this is, of course, all us geeks. And the question on the table is, what makes you a geek? We can do Jeff and then Nathan. Hmm, what makes me a geek? I would say probably the fact that I've been into, you know, interested in and getting involved in sci-fi fantasy since I was a little kid. I've been playing board games since I was a little kid. I'd say that that probably sort of certifies my geek cred pretty well. All right, and uh, and Nathan, what what specifically makes you a geek? Do you think? Well, um, obviously, big time gamer. I've been playing games since since I was a kid as well. I actually, uh, 
I remember, distinctly remember playing even the likes of Axis and Allies at the age of seven. Um, I knew all the rules, whether or not a new strategy, I don't, I don't know, but uh, I definitely knew how to play it even at that age, which was kind of cool. Um, definitely been in sci-fi. Our whole family, of course, was really uh, big-time Trekkies, so uh, pretty big Trekkie. Um, a lot of fantasy stuff, love Lord of the Rings. I guess my, my claim, claim to geekdom, though, I guess the epitome, so to speak, would be um, the year in which the Return of the King uh, movie came out. Uh, Jeff, myself, and two other friends actually went to a basically a Lord of the Rings convention of sorts. Um, and during that convention, I uh, at one portion of it that they had at the medieval times, I actually ended up dressing up like Gollum, full like body paint. I didn't even come prepared to do it, and I just kind of threw something together. So, but it worked out. I had uh, so I dressed up like Gollum, and I even got down like you know did the crawl and everything, and had a friend of mine dressed like Bilbo or not Bilbo, uh, dressed like Sam who had a rope around my neck and would pull me back, and it, it was great times. Um, I actually uh, I had so many hot chicks coming up and wanting to get their picture taken with me, so it was definitely uh, worth it. Everybody loves Gollum, <laughs> exactly. Now, do you have any geek level passions for anything that most people would not consider geeky? We'll start with with Nathan and we'll go to Jeff. Geek level passions. Um, hmm. I guess the, the first thing that comes to mind, although a lot of people would probably consider it geeky, would be Excel. I'm a huge Microsoft Excel nut. Um, I can do some crazy things in it. Done actually done Excel consulting before and things like that. Um, my brain pretty much operates in Excel, but um, but that's kind of geeky, I guess. So I don't know. Um, it's not traditional though, so it works. I mean, I can copy and I can paste in Excel, and I can, I can sometimes make things bold. Jeff, Jeff, I used to I used to tell Jeff that uh, I could make Excel sing and dance, and so being the older brother, he told me, "Well, prove it." And so then I had to actually figure out how to do it and. I did. A, I do a lot of the VBA coding with it too, and I actually was able to get it to effectively sing and dance. It was pretty cool. So I'm kind of proud of that one. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I can't do anything like that, so I'm I'm definitely impressed. And and Jeff, what um, what non geeky things, at least traditionally non geeky, do you raise to the level of geekdom with your passion? I would say that definitely has to be my love of the Detroit Lions. I, I've we used to live in Michigan and I started watching Barry Sanders back in the day and I've loved the lions ever since. And I'm just, I'm, I'm crazy when it comes to, to football, but only for the lions. Like I don't really care about football as a, as a sport, but I will watch every single lions game. I went to, I actually went to the Oakland Coliseum in the black hole to watch when the lions came to the Raiders to play them in my full, like Matthew Stafford, Detroit lions, Jersey, I was a bit scary, but I, I still did it, and it was pretty awesome. Nice. So I, I see the balance here. So in your work life, you have this really fulfilling job where you make sure satellites don't crash into one another, and then you watch football so you can be deeply disappointed once a week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it has been like that frequently. I understand now. I understand. And that's actually kind of interesting because I think most people – who are into really deep into fantasy football are the kind of guys who would just not ever admit that it is a geeky thing, but fantasy football is absolutely 100% a truly geeky thing. Oh, it is. I saw this meme on Facebook. Today. It just was funny to me because it showed this picture of these guys sitting around a couch with a TV, you know, and their TV had football on it and they were like filling out these score sheets and stuff. And it's a, the text said, Fantasy football, D and D for jocks or something like that. Yeah, and it's it's even in some ways it's even more geeky because you can't even control the game. Like at least in Dungeons and Dragons and board gaming and all kinds of other stuff, you're in control of what you're doing. But in fantasy football, you're literally just watching someone else control your passion. Yes, which is very strange to me. Um, now to to round out. The Patent of Jeff King warm-up questions. What drives you to do what you do? Why publish games? Why get into games at all? Why why not some other expression? Well, I think for me it it started just with my love of games in general. I've always 
really loved games and I wanted to be involved in the game business in some way to help bring games to people. And I didn't know quite starting out if it was I was going to do design or if I was going to do some kind of retail thing or what. And and I realized after talking to Nathan and we and we actually looked into um this this game we have coming on Kickstarter. So I'll give a teaser here of Campaign Trail because my dad designed it and Nathan and I were looking at it and we really wanted to bring that game to market. And I think that's where the passion first came for actually publishing games. It was already designed, but we really found a lot of um, self-actualization and we found a lot of just fulfillment in taking a game and perfecting it and, and developing it and making it just shine for the public consumption. And what draws you into it, Nathan? Um, somewhat the same. I mean, I would say obviously the, the same aspect as far as the, the board gaming. Uh, again, I remember playing board games as a kid. I mean, there were times when uh, um, I, I'm actually the youngest of our family. There's four, four siblings, four of us. Um, and I remember there was times when the older siblings had gone off to college or whatever, and I'd uh, I'd be sitting there. I'd have no way to play with, so I'd actually make up my own solo play rules on different games or whatever, just to you know have something you know to be able to play, if you will. Um, so I always had a passion for board games, and of course, with the the splurge of the uh, board game industry within the last couple of decades, it's been amazing to see all the different possibilities that are out there. Um, from the business side of it, I would say, um, in addition to my IT, I actually have a, an MBA, and so I, I've enjoyed that that business side. Like I said, with the Excel stuff, I'm very much a, I guess, analytical between that and the programming. So I have that analytical mind and getting in, delving into all the different nuts and bolts of a of a business and so on. And actually, as far back as I can remember, um, I always wanted to. to do something as far as like starting a business or being an entrepreneur in some form or fashion. I had no idea. I had all these weird ideas back when I was younger, of course. And, and uh, I tend to be a very much an optimistic, very much uh, a dreamer. And so a lot of times I dream of these weird things that would just never happen. But of course, as a kid, you think anything can happen. But then, you know, progress and, and mature and, you know, get, you know, get education and so forth. And so kind of refine that. And so with this extra splurge in board gaming, kind of combining that that desire for being an entrepreneur and starting my business, as well as really enjoying the, the the gaming piece of it, it just kind of meshes really well. And I find uh, I find for myself, I tend to be um, very good. I think at refining a design, I'm not as good at like coming up with a design from scratch. But I can take existing designs. I started doing this. I, I realized that about myself with actually other published games and I was like, oh, you could tweak this or you could change this or there should be an expansion and this out this is how you would do it or whatever. And so I found that I have that, I guess that's one of my niches, so to speak, of refining existing concepts. And so that fits right in with the publishing role. Well and that's actually a really good segue um to the next question that I had is that most people who come on the game of crowdfunding are bringing one of their own designs, something, you know, they've crafted from scratch and you know really took a long time to develop it and it's all it's their baby and that's why they're not giving it over to a publisher but that's not really the case with you guys is it now i know that campaign trail which we'll talk about um is not your first foray into kickstarter and it's not your own design originally is your the previous game that you had on there uh stones of fate was that a design of one of you or are you really focused on the publishing side? The the short answer to your question is that uh, we are definitely on the side of the publishing aspect. Uh, we have you know Stones of Fate out. We have Campaign Trail coming. And we have about four or five other games in our pipeline. And out of all those, none of them that we have designed ourselves. With regard specifically to Stones of Fate, it was a game designed by a friend of mine, Luke Laurie. And we picked that one up knowing that Starting out, we need something that was very simple and easy to do. It's a it's a short game. It's a relatively simple and easy game to teach, although with with a lot of depth to it. We thought it was a perfect game. Um, it's a it's a small box game too. It's only is eighty two cards and some glass stones. So we thought it was a perfect game to get out as far as our first product. 
Now, what's um, for those who are, you know, for the benefit of those who are listening, because a lot of people listen to this are people who have games and are interested in getting them out there into the marketplace. So hearing from a publisher, which is kind of a rare thing on uh, on this podcast, is a, an interesting kind of perspective. So what kind of game is in your wheelhouse? What is Cosmic Wombat Games really attracted to? Um. As far as that, I would say I don't know if there's any one specific type per se. I mean, there's a few things that we probably won't do. We don't want to make any promises. Like we typically, you know, wouldn't do a like something like a miniatures or RPG or something along those lines. But uh, other than that, really, our our wheelhouse, if you will, is actually variety, as as weird as it may sound, in, in that sense, because we wanted to have in our in our repertoire so to speak we wanted to have a variety of different types of games both in mechanics and and age groups and depth of play and all those types of things so even within the six games that we have signed there's a fair amount like the the campaign trail which we'll talk about is roughly about a 2 hour long it's a strategy game and so on Stones of Fate that Jeff just mentioned is a lighter kind of uh you know, lighter strategy, um, simple, you know, 20 minutes-ish time frame. We actually have one that we're developing that's a dice-based game. It's more for family-oriented. We have another one that's kind of a, a, t- a take on a route building that's more kind of open to to new gamers, kind of a gateway-ish game, if you will. Um, and then we have another one that's kind of a tableau building, a lot more theme, rich theme, and, and that sort of thing kind of behind it. Um so there's there's a lot of variety there, um, and that's kind of what we want. And we're we're looking at others that we we had a lot of pitches to us this this year at Gen Con as well. And so we're kind of working with those to see what we can take on and time frame and all of that. But even those were even additional variety. So, all right. So if someone is listening at their desk and pretending to work, and <laughs> they think, well, I have a game that is neither miniatures nor an RPG, I should pitch it to them. How do you know, what is the best way for you as a publisher to be reached about a, someone submitting a game to you? Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a couple different methods. Um, they could definitely email us. It's uh, either Jeff at CosmicWombatGames.com or Nathan at CosmicWombatGames.com. Our website also has um, a means to email us through the website. Now, the website, we are working on revamping to make it a lot more uh information more user friendly so I, I do plan on having a specific page on there that has a lot more information about game submission and that sort of thing um, but that's one way they can even reach out to us on Facebook um, even Twitter although that probably wouldn't be as as good as those other methods but there's a lot of different methods there even uh, we've even had some people like at, at the booth at Gen Con just come up now obviously that's a little bit hit and miss because um, you know, we were very, very busy at Gen Con, so we may not have time. A lot of the, a lot of the people pitch to us; they scheduled ahead of time, which is would be the preferred method. But uh, one of our approaches is we want to, or one of our, our philosophies, if you will, we very much want to be approachable. Um, that's something we focus on. So we'll definitely listen to a pitch. We, you know, obviously we'll judge based on the game. The game still has to be a good game, and you know, all those factors. Um, we have to look at our queue and our timeline and all that. But we'll definitely be willing to to listen to a pitch if at all possible. Um, because we want to be very, very approachable to do so. So when you guys are not publishing games, uh, what games do you like to play in your spare time? I play a lot of, well, I have a Saturday regular game group that meets every Saturday, although I haven't been having a chance to get to it recently because I've been working on publishing games. But when I do get a chance to go, we play all kinds of uh, strategy games, a lot of the current hot games. Um, I actually have found that uh, the game Viticulture, I play quite a bit with my wife. She and I play a two-player, and that's been a really fun two-player game we found that works really well for us. Well, Jamie will be pleased to hear that somewhere. <laughs> nice. Um for me, uh, ironically, I don't get as much opportunity to play games as much as I'd like. I'm, I'm working with trying to find some game groups, and I found one, but then a lot of the meetups I've had recently were at you know other smaller cons I was involved in or other meetings or whatever. 
Um, and between work and, and working so much on a lot of the Cosmic Wombat, not just the game development, but the business side of things, as well as having a two-year-old, um, it kind of keeps me busy. So um, I don't have as much free time, unfortunately, with all those different factors. But I do, uh, I do enjoy playing more or less anything. Uh, recently, I was at least able to play. I played that new, uh, fairly new cacao game, or however you pronounce it. And uh, also was able to play New York 1901. Both of those uh, were were very good, and really enjoyed those. So nice to to move on to kind of getting closer to our topic here. Um, as I mentioned before, this is not your first foray into Kickstarter. Um, Cosmic Wombat has been on Kickstarter before with Stones of Fate, but you did not get out the first time. The first time was not successful. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the journey of going from, you know, a, a campaign that didn't work to one that definitely did. So what was the biggest thing that you guys learned your first time out on Kickstarter? I think for me, it was just the, the network that's really required to be successful on Kickstarter. Um, we were kind of naive starting out and realize and, and thought, you know, oh, we'll just throw it up there and people will come back because it's a great game. And it is a great game, but that doesn't necessarily mean people have any clue that it is or even that it exists. And so that was really an eye opener is that we just didn't have the reach and the network that we should have had going into it. Another yeah, and that that's definitely a huge aspect there. And then we also we kind of reevaluated some of the the graphic design piece of it. We reached out again, and part of that networking was also just getting more actual feedback on different elements of the the Kickstarter itself, or the graphic design, or you know what did we do wrong, what did we do right, and getting that that actual consensus, that that customer feedback on that. One of the other major factors we looked at was the pricing. We reached out to additional. Um, printers to look at our pricing so we could lower our goal amount because you know having that lower goal amount and the higher you know percentage funded in the first few days on Kickstarter and all those things uh, definitely goes a long way so that was able to uh, help us significantly also so what would you say were the biggest differences between the way you guys ran the first campaign versus the way you ran the second campaign? Or were there big differences um, during the actual campaign itself? Uh, one of the big differences was Nathan just mentioned was the goal amount. Because at first we had set our goal amount for nineteen thousand, and then we went down to like twelve thousand five hundred based on finding a new printer and doing um, or, or trying to be able to do fewer copies. So that was the big thing. I think as far as how we ran the campaign the first time versus the second time was. Um, probably just more engagement with uh, the social media um, platforms like Google plus and um, Facebook. And I, I reached out to so many different Facebook groups that I hadn't even been a part of previously and, and started chatting with people on those about the game and, um, you know, offering them print and plays of the game and things like that. So for you, you think that the the biggest difference was uh, really just getting the word out there, getting that networking, kind of building the tribe. Yes. All right. That's uh, it's it's you know it's good information. Like I said, a lot of people who are listening um, are also considering or have already done kickstarters of their own. So every little bit of information, especially from someone who has succeeded, that's that's good info. Um, before we move on to the game itself just real quick um if you're listening you should log on to the cosmic wombat uh, website and you'll find that it's a really nice simple cleanly designed website and i think i know the answer to this but uh who made your website um i actually made that on the wix.com platform that's it was that's a that's pretty awesome to hear you say that too, because I have this vision in my head of, of refining it and tweaking it and so on. It's just been on the back burner because we've had so much else going on. So um, we'll, uh, we'll continue to re- revamp it as, as time goes on, of course, but that's good to hear. Yeah. I just went on there. It was uh, you know, really clean. The menus looked nice. Uh, there was a, a shopping cart built in. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, a, a lot of people have independent published, you know, independent 
companies that are trying to sell games out of the back of their car, basically. And so being able to have all that, you know, built into the website's really nice. Um, so kudos to that. Now, yeah, what, mm-hmm. I would say in that regards into some of the previous comments from the, from the publisher side about what you mentioned about people, you know, and I have seen that where a lot of people, um, that design their own game and then they go and try to self publish and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, but I, I would also say, and this isn't from trying to be selfish because we're more than happy to point you in the direction of other publishers if a particular game isn't for us or whatever. Cause again, we want to be, you know, approachable and friendly and, and give back to the community and all that. But I would say it's actually to a designer, it's very, very beneficial to have other people work on your game or develop your game. Uh, Jeff and I are members of the, the League of Game Makers, and it's a blog that we provide a lot of different resources, and that's been a general consensus from several of those individuals, both designers and publishers alike. Um, because having extra eyes on it never hurts having extra, you know, development. Cause I get the, I get the, definitely get the concept of, you know, it's your baby, but if a publisher signs a game, they want it to sell as much as you do, if not more. And so having that extra team behind you. And one of our philosophies also is to kind of work collaboratively with the designer. We don't just say, Hey, we're going to sign the game and now you can go shut up and sit down over there. I'll just throw you money. That's not how we work. We want to work with you. We want to stay true to your vision, all of those different things. And we've done that pretty successfully, I think, with, with our, our designers. Um, also, the other thing is a lot of um, self-publishers don't, I think, and, and a lot there are a lot that do a lot of research, but there's also a fair amount I've found through different social media platforms I've discovered that um, aren't aware of all the business back end of stuff that happens. And that's kind of the point behind a publisher. So it allows the designer to focus on the designs that they have in mind and then the publisher can do some of those other things with the printing and marketing and, and networking and you know conventions and all these different things um, that go into it. So it, it kind of makes a great partnership. And so I would I would recommend um, you know there's there's pros and cons either way ultimately I suppose. But uh, I just throw that out there in relation to kind of what we've been talking about that uh, something to consider you know going with a publisher versus the self publishing route. Well, it's a very interesting point. I think uh, it's a lot of a lot of stuff to chew on for the people th- uh, thinking at home and listening. Um, now let's move on to to the the game specifically now that is on Kickstarter right now. We're talking about the game Campaign Trail, and really quick, what is the elevator pitch for Campaign Trail? Nathan, I'll let you handle that. <laughs> oh, the elevator pitch. Um, well, Campaign Trail is a um, two to six player um, resource management strategy game that plays in about two hours. Um, candidates take on the or players take on the role of candidates uh, vying for presidency of the United States. Um, with two and three players, it is one on one. With four to six players, you actually play in teams as uh, teams of two with your running mate. So it's got a kind of a unique team aspect. Um, the, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot going on. It's very simple to play. Um, you have a hand of cards. Each card has four different action options on it. There's six total actions in the game. Each card only has four of those. And, um, you just play a card, you know, select the action, carry it out. But within that, there's a lot of strategic depth of what you, what action you choose and the timing of when you play those cards. There's things like fundraising, registering voters, you can campaign, you can advertise. There's even some debates in the game that are simulated with the gameplay. You don't actually, you know, verbally debate your opponent. Um, that kind of thing. So there's, there's a lot of, a, a lot of different strategy, a lot of back and forth of vying for these different states. Um, there's also some unique aspects like our, our, uh, variable player powers with the candidate cards, um, and things of that nature. So it's, um, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. And let's talk about now at first it's, it's kind of interesting that this is uh, essentially a Euro game about America. Is that about right? Essentially. Yeah. So if you, if you like Euro games out there uh, right off the bat, you got to take a look at campaign trail because um, there's a lot of really fascinating mechanics going on here. Now let's talk a bit about the development of the game um, because as we mentioned just very briefly earlier, this game was made by your dad. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I, I remember playing it with my dad as early. I, can't, I don't remember the exact age I was. I was like 10, 11 years old, something like that. 
And he was he was introducing me to games in general. We played a lot of the old Avalon Hill board games. We played Axis and Allies. Um, and we played a lot of the common, you know, Monopoly and Life and things like that as well. But he was kind of transitioning me and introducing me into some of these other games, like the heavier strategy type of games. And he's like, I, I got this game I've been working on with me and my brothers. Like he and his brothers started designing it even before I was born, I guess. And he's like, well, want to check this one out? So I'm like, sure. And I played it with him. And I was like, wow, there's something to that. And at the time, I didn't necessarily know, you know all the depth of the strategy because I was a kid. But I really liked the just the concept of, of trying to get these voters into states and trying to win the electoral college. And, and it was kind of funny because I was the kid in school when I got in, you know, eventually into junior high and high school and I had my government classes. I was a kid that totally understood electoral college. No one else did. They were all confused about it. I was like, yeah, it works like this. You get a majority of the state, you get that many number of electoral votes and whatever, you know, cause I played this game so much. And so, yeah, uh, we were, we've been playing that game for, for years now. And how different is the game now from oh what it was back then? It's you want to do that one, Jeff? Sure. Start it. So, and <laughs> the game now um, is it's actually quite a bit different because we what we did was we took his design um, and we basically what I call modernized it for modern board games. Um, one of the things that he was using in his design was um, just sheets of paper to track the number of votes. So you had a sheet of paper that had all the different states listed, and you would write down in pencil, like, if I go through this state, I put 10 voters in this state. And if I go to this state, I put, you know, 10, add that, so I'd race the 10, I'd put 20. And so it was these, like, score sheets. So that was one thing where, like, you know, we can't publish a modern game with that kind of score sheets, that kind of consumable thing. So you have to figure out some way to track the area control aspect on the board. So we added, you know, it went through a lot of different iterations. Um, yes. We had some things where you're tracking it with some chips. And then we had, we went to the cube idea. So we have wooden cubes that we track it with. Um, and then another thing we did was we changed the card play aspect because the card play aspect used to occur in phases where you had like an advertising phase, you know, the campaign phase, and you had an event phase. And we changed that to basically say, you play a card and it has, four actions on it and you just get to choose what action you want to do at that time. So there's no kind of where players aren't like uh, funneled into a certain action they have to do on a phase. They can just basically play a card from their hand. If, if advertising works well for them at this point in the game, they can do that. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you want to actually be campaigning right now or fundraising right now instead of doing this other stuff. And so that, that was really instrumental in bringing it from kind of that, that early concept into the fully functional like modern board game it is today we're yeah we're essentially on from when we kind of took it over if you will it, it kind of sat on the back burner for years and then we kind of in fact campaign trail is, is in part one of the reasons if you will or one of the motivators behind starting the company as a whole uh, and when we took it over from when we took it over was in i was talking to my dad about it in about 2011 and that was before we had the company, I was like, well, let's just, you know, let's get it out. See, and he even knew at that time, but we need to be modernized, taken away from that paper thing that Jeff was talking about. And so I was like, well, let's, let's get it kind of tweaked. And the, and then let's, you know, just, let, let's just take it to Gen Con, see how it goes, see what the reception is and, you know, go from there. And so we, our first version was at Gen Con 2012 and, uh, you know, submitted a bunch of events, ran a bunch of events, had a lot of people, uh, really enjoy it. We always do feedback forms with all our games and we evaluate that and take that to heart and, um, just to, again, in, involve the, the potential customers in that development process, if you will. And so each year at Gen Con, basically the timing worked out. So we had a new version each year. So as far as from when we kind of took it over to it, it, it within its modern version, if you will, um, it's currently on its fourth iteration just within quote unquote modern times, so to speak. So it's been a, it's been a long road, um, but it's been very good. Every time we make changes, it's always been for the best and it's always been based on observations we made or feedback or, you know, adding strategy or whatever, um, it may be, but it's always enhanced the game in some way. So, well, that's a, that's a very interesting point. Cause it's something that I always say that, the best way to sell a person a game is to get them to play it because if you, if they can play it they are so much more likely to then go purchase it or support your kickstarter right. or something um so that's why you know uh, conventions are so important 
Fully agree. Yeah, the convention has been huge for, like you said, getting eyes on it, but it also that whole feedback process, not just, like I said, we do feedback forms, but also just we, a lot of times we just stand back and observe because there's things that we want to see, you know, well, with this mechanic, you know, are, is it, you know, are the players reacting to it this way or are they actually doing this other thing that we didn't anticipate or whatever? So we just stand back and kind of make our own observations. So in addition to those feedback forms, we'd have notebooks and we'd have pages and pages of notes throughout the different, you know, versions um, to try to tweak things and, and enhance and so on. Um, and as far as those, those players, that dedicated support from the players, it's been really awesome to see. Uh, we've actually had um, a couple people, one in particular comes to mind, that has actually played it at all four different Gen Cons. He's actually played all four different iterations. So it's been really cool to see some of those people come back year and year, year after year. Now, obviously this is about politics. This game is not necessarily about current politics, correct? I mean, we're, we're every time you turn on the news or open a newspaper, just, I don't know, look at your dog. There's something about politics uh, about out and about. Now, does your game really focus on that or is it more about the general landscape? So it's a kind of a cross between the two. I mean, it, it doesn't, set up or try to mimic any particular presidential race. There's no character of, you know, Hillary Clinton. There's no character of Donald Trump or anything like that. Um, so we just have generic. We do have like the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and then we actually have a third party you can add in three players uh, that we just call an independent party. But with that being said, it does take place in the modern era of politics because the Electoral vote totals for the states are set according to the most recent census as of 2010. So, you know, California has 55, Texas has 38, Illinois has 20, and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's also, um, as far as part of the advertising action within the game, you can advertise on certain issues of the day. And our issues are based on what we thought were current political issues in our in our current political climate. So you have... Things like, well, the economy is always going to be an issue. You have like tax code reform, and you have like uh, environmental um, conservation. Um, you have uh, the threat of terrorism and things like that. These these particular issues that we care about today. Now, obviously, in ten, twenty years, some of those may not be issues anymore. We may have to redo the game or give it a new skin to, to put on the new current issues of that day and change some of the electoral vote totals around. Things like that. But we'll we'll see how this one goes over first, and if this one sells well, then we might be yeah. doing some of that. A lot of a lot of those issues, though, are the types of issues that have been around for several several decades. So they're you know in you know fifty sixty hundred years or whatever they may not be issues potentially, but they are you know the chances of them not being issues in five years or so is probably not very high. They probably still will be issues within the near future because of, you know, the way they're the issues that we chose and uh, put in there. So, well, when the Android uprising happens in about 10 years, then <laughs> that's really going to become a hot button issue. I think there you go. Um, yeah. So for someone who is a, a politics junkie, you know, for someone who's uh, reads everything all the time, why do they need to get your game right now? Um, the reason they need to get our game is because it's gonna it's gonna get a niche for them that that they don't have out there right now. Uh, we we've seen a lot of people have talked to us and come up to us at Gen Con and other conventions, and they, that's exactly what they said. They said we are I'm a politics junkie. I love the political process. I love digging into that, and I just don't. There's not a game out there that really captures that feel for me. Um, and there are some great political games out there, and, they, and they'll say that. They're like, I've played some of these other ones, and, and they're good, but I just, I'm just i still missing something that captures the modern feel of politics. And, and they play the game, they're like, this is it. This is what does it. But at the same time, um, I, I don't want to focus too much, because that, that is true for those people, and they, and they love it. But at the same time, the game itself, just the mechanics of the area control aspect, the card-driven actions and things like that, really appeal to gamers of all stripes. And we've had gamers that say, I don't even like politics at all. And, and I love playing this game just because it's a very strategic and, and deep game. Yeah. That, and I was going to make a note of that because the, I guess you could consider it potentially ironic in that with, with Jeff and I being the, the two uh, developers of the game, 
Uh, he's definitely a lot more aware of politics and follows politics and so forth. I'm one of those politics just isn't my thing. I don't really follow it. I don't really care a whole lot. Um, and yet I've developed the game. I was, you know, major developer in it. Um, and so, you know, I can definitely obviously attest to that fact from my experience and, and my view of it in, in the development process, as well as what Jeff mentioned, as far as us playing it with people at conventions that normally would be turned, you know, might be turned off by the theme, but then we kind of talk to them, convince them to play and they really, really enjoy it. So yeah, we definitely also want to stress that fact that even if you don't like politics, it's a great game as a game. I very much enjoy it and I'm not even a political person, um, but there's a lot of depth of strategy to it. So in other words, it's got appeal for people who are really into politics and people who are not. And does that also include, you think, uh, people who aren't even from the United States, people who don't know much about the political machine here? Um, the, the interesting thing about that is we were we were actually not expecting it to, to be very popular to go over outside the United States, and we were okay with that. We knew going in that we were developing a U.S. political presidential campaign game and that we would probably be limited to the U.S. Um, but the, the response from some of the overseas people that have seen our posting about it has, has kind of surprised us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had reviewers from France and some, from Poland and from Germany all reach out to us and say, we want to get a copy of this game to review because this looks awesome. And I tell them, I'm like, you, this is a political presidential campaign game from the U.S. system. They're like, yeah, we know that. They're like, we study your electoral system in our schools. We know all about your electoral system. And and we love the concept of the game and how it plays, and we just we think it's a good game. Yeah, it's been awesome. We're actually in process of, of working with a German publisher that wants to uh, create a German version and publish it there in Germany. Actually, so um, it's been it's it's got a lot more potential than we even realized for sure. That's uh, that's very interesting. I mean, I think it'd also be interesting to people who are who are looking to. Um, to publish games that might have more of a uh, Ameri-centric kind of idea. Don't neglect our friends and neighbors across the ponds there because um, there are very large gaming communities, especially if you're doing something like a Euro-style game and Euros are king overseas. So you definitely can't neglect you know, Germany and, and Britain and all that if you're doing a Euro game. Correct. Yeah. From what we've been told, actually, um, and obviously it's going to vary from person to person, but as an overall community or atmosphere, um, what we've been told by some of those folks is that um, they, they're they more focused on the gameplay and mechanics than they are on theme. Not to say they don't care about theme, but they're more focused on mechanics overall than would be here in the United States, typically, on average, if you will. So. Oh yeah, that's I mean that that is in essence the the great debate in the world of games. Do you do you love the mechanics or do you love the theme? Personally, I think that you need a, a really healthy marriage of both. Um, but there are definitely people squarely in one corner or squarely in another um, yep. who don't need any mechanics at all and just want the theme, or you know don't need any colors on the box and just want cubes <laughs> to push around. Um, for for you both, let's start with Nathan and then go to Jeff. What is the coolest thing about the game for you? <laughs> oh man. Um Wow. Well, um there's been a lot of a lot of different developments and changes throughout. Um I would say Couple things that come to mind. Part of me wants to say the map because I actually built the map, but that'd be a little bit self-serving. So, um, <laughs> um, no, I would say though, in in, uh, in seriousness, um, would be the two major mechanisms um, would be the the cards, the multi-use card approach, um, and so having that ability where you can have that timing and and there's a big time there's a there's a big opportunity cost there. Do I you know I really want a campaign in this you know the states that are showing on this card. But I really need money, and this card also gives me a lot of money. But if I play it for the money, I, there goes my opportunity to, you know, because I have to discard that card. So now I can no longer campaign in those states that are showing. And so there's a lot of that give and take, that piece of, you know, how do I want to play this, the timing of playing when it when it's best for me. So I would say that multi-use card aspect has opened up a lot of doors, especially from the phases that it was in. 
um, previously. And so now you have a lot more options as to focusing on certain specific types of strategies as well. Um, so I'll say the cards. Um, I'll leave the other one that Jeff might mention uh, available for him. If he doesn't, I'll come back and mention it. But. <laughs> well, I, I will say the map is a great, great map. I, lo- I love the map. So I'll, I'll give Nathan his credit for that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I, I think one of the cool things for me that I like about the game, I don't know if this was what Nathan was getting at, but uh, is the candidate cards that we've, and this has been a relatively recent development in the game. Uh, we added uh, the concept of having a candidate that you play, and this candidate gives you a special bonus in a certain area. So, like, one of them is the guy that comes from the wealthy family, and he has all kinds of money, and he doesn't have to go out and fundraise that much because he has money coming in from everywhere. And the other guy is the guy that's a really populist candidate. He's a man of the people. Like, he can actually campaign easier than everybody else. When he campaigns and he holds a campaign rally, he gets way more voters than other people do because he's just so popular a guy. And uh, so the the candidate cards and given that special ability and then, and then how you tie that into your use of those cards. I was talking about like that concept of, well, now you may not need to use that card for fundraising as much because you can use your lesser valued fundraising cards because you are the, the rich character. Um, so there's this kind of like, I got to use my candidate's ability in conjunction with how these cards are working within the game. And the, this, the incredible depth of strategy just comes out when you, when you add those two together. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very good one. The other one I was going to mention, uh, which you didn't, which is fine, um, just to throw it out there, um, and this is to give props back to Jeff as well because this was originally his his development or idea, one of his ideas, um, is also in addition to the cars and the candidate uh, abilities that Jeff mentioned, is our, uh, our means of real-time electoral vote uh, scoring. Uh, previous to this mechanism that we built into it, uh, you didn't know where you really sat in during the game. Uh, and so like at the end of the game, then you had to do all this math. You had to go through every state and count it up and tally it up on the sheet of paper. Then you had to add it all together to really see. And so like just figuring out whether or not you won or who was in the lead and all that kind of stuff took a lot of effort. Um, so we actually developed a method uh, with Jeff's, you know, kind of spinning off of Jeff's uh, brainstorm idea he had at one point where we have tokens, shipboard tokens that are physically proportionate to the number of electoral votes for that state. And they sit in these little tracks per party. So as vote, as states change, you know, uh, a party hands, if you will, you just move that state's token to the track corresponding to that particular party. And so now you, you can always see at a, at a glance where you're at because whoever's the furthest along on that track is in the lead. And you don't even have to do any math. You don't have to count it or anything. We kind of even have it notched off so you can kind of know the number of where you're at if, if that matters to you and so on. And so it allows you not only to, um, not have to do all that math and calculation, everything at the end, but it also gives you an additional uh, element of strategy during the game because now I can see where I sit in any moment's notice. Because um, for those that are familiar with the electoral votes piece, you know, of course, California and Texas, big states, more or less always going to be fought over. But we've seen the game actually won when the when a candidate did not have Florida, did not have New York, did not have Texas, and did not have California. Because what what uh, you know what you'll notice if, if for those that aren't already familiar with that electoral vote system is that those medium weight states like your Ohio and your your Illinois and your North Carolina and Georgia and so on. Those are really ultimately where, where it's, you know, won, where it's fought and won. And so those medium weight states can add up a lot faster than most people realize. And so now you can see that as the game progresses. So you can adjust your strategy accordingly. And so it's, um, added that additional element as well. So I guess just, um, for my own curiosity, do states tend to lean one way or the other as they do? in our real political system? So the starting setup of the game does um, set up with states leaning one way or the other. Every party has a certain number of states they start with one voter in on the board. And so you have like your deep south and your western states that normally swing red. They all go to the Republicans to start with. Um, You know, your New England states, California, Hawaii, those states that usually swing blue will go to the Democratic Party to start with. And then uh, what we did to add the independent in there was we took the swing states 
um, you know, the ones that typically in our modern elections, they call the swing states. You have Ohio, you have Florida, you have New Mexico, some of those that could go either way in any election. And we gave those the independent party. We said, okay, these are going to have where the independent party starts. And it really starts out very evenly. So every, in a three player game or three party game, every party starts out with either 179 to 180 electoral votes. Now, with that being said, throughout the course of the game after that, it's pretty much anybody's game. I mean, we've seen games where the Republicans have had a stronghold in California, have taken California, and Democrats have taken Texas, and just all kinds of crazy stuff like that can happen. It doesn't really happen yeah. in, in the U.S. modern elections. And, that's, uh, and, that's and a lot of that's for gameplay. Correct. For the, the gameplay balancing, and, and it's been a lot of fun, too, because a lot of players – between the the issues that we mentioned, the political issues we mentioned earlier, as well as that aspect of you know swinging opposite of what's quote unquote real world, um, a lot of players have had fun you know kind of this this mini satiric or satirical mini role play aspect, just kind of a little bit of trash talking their friends, having fun with it. Um, the other aspect with that on that swinging piece of it is that there's also a tiebreaker. So like they start in one party, like Jeff mentioned. But if, you know, through the course of a game, there's ever a tie in a given state, which does happen from time to time because somebody gets a vote in a state and then your, you know, your strategy, oh, I got to catch up to them or whatever because I really want that state. If there's a tie, each state has basically a, a tiebreaker so that, you know, if there's a tie between Democrats and Republican, a given, you know, state will, you know, a given party will win that particular, um, you know, tie, if you will. And so that given party will, uh, get the electoral votes for that state, even though it is the tie. So that element is also in there as well, related to that uh, balance piece. Now let's talk a little bit, uh, just the nitty gritty of the campaign itself, the Kickstarter campaign that's live right now. As people are listening to this, um, as long as they're not, you know, catching up way late, um, goes live September. Please remind me the 16th, correct? Correct. Okay, September 16th, and runs for how long? It'll run through October 9th. All right, so not not quite a full month. And how much is the base game? The base game uh, will be $54 plus a shipping charge. And that, that is one thing we wanted to address. Um, uh, we know in, in the past, uh, a lot of Kickstarter campaigns have um, included the shipping charge within the base game price, and then Kickstarter changed their um, setup so that you can actually add that on afterwards, and you can break it up by country. And so we felt it to be fair to international backers, be fair to everybody. We were just going to charge the actual shipping that we would we have to pay to ship the game, mm-hmm. um, and and we want to make it as doable as possible for everybody so we are using a fulfillment company that has warehouses throughout the u.s and throughout the world so that those shipping charges are actually fairly low um as low as we can get it but again we we do charge what we're actually charged to ship them ourselves but yeah so 54 dollars for the base game that's going to be about a 17 percent off the final msrp which will be set at 65 dollars i think uh when when Kickstarter changed that, there was definitely a lot of confusion for backers. And some people don't like it, but I think all the people who don't like it don't quite understand how awesome that shipping changes for project creators. Because you can be so ridiculously specific on how much to charge people to get the game to them. And that is a, like a godsend. Correct. And I, and I think it comes down to that psychology of it that as a result of them before that change, that ability in Kickstarter, most Kickstarters were done in such a way where shipping was effectively incorporated. Now, ultimately, you're still paying for shipping. They say it's free shipping. They just up the price. I mean, that's just the way it works on the back end. But psychologically, people don't see that. They see, you know, free shipping. So they've gotten kind of ingrained into thinking free shipping. Now, that trend is starting to change part, in a large part due to Kickstarter uh, implementing the new the new method, um, but you'll see a lot more Kickstarter projects now that have additional shipping charged upon pledging. Um, and like Jeff said, you know we we debated back and forth. We looked at a lot. You know we we threw it out there to people. We looked at a lot of you know psychology behind you know sales and, and that sort of thing. And and uh, but ultimately we wanted to you know be fair to everybody and actually charge them only what we're being charged. 
Um, because as many people know, and some people may not be aware, shipping is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, hiccup or, or financial factor behind Kickstarter uh, production and fulfillment. So the game is $54, and what is the goal? The goal is set at $35,000 right now, and that will be enough to get us a you know, $1,500 print run. We are printing with uh, Panda Game Manufacturing, very popular and common um, printer copy. for a lot, a lot of... What's that? You said $1,500. It was 1,500 copies, sorry. Oh, yes, 1,500 copies uh, for 35000 And we're pretty with Panda Game Manufacturing which is you know, a very popular and common printer for a lot of Kickstarter projects. You know, Jamie Stegmeyer of Viticulture, I mentioned earlier, used Panda to print his stuff. And a lot of, a lot of Kickstarters using Panda, and, and they do outstanding work. Uh, we met with them at Gen Con, saw a lot of their production quality, and I've gotten a lot of Kickstarter games myself where I've seen firsthand their production quality. So we're pretty happy with how that's going to go. Now... With $54 and a $35,000 goal, that's that's a lot of copies. That's a lot of backers that you need if it's just at that level. I think it's over 500 But do you have other levels that people can dive into uh, to maybe get some more some more experience, to get their, their hands in it? Yes. We have a couple of different levels where you can kind of um, add stuff into the game as a backer. So at see what is it sixty nine dollars i think it is sixty nine dollars yeah is our super pack we call it our super pack and again going off the kind of political theme there uh so that'd be a fun thing to do to have people actually sponsor a card or, or buy space on a card um for their for their super pack um as you see a lot in political advertisements today you'll see you know this advertisement will come on it'll be like paid for by uh, veterans in support of whatever or something like that and and that is a that's a super pack that's actually paid for that ad to support a particular candidate or not so in our super pack version we're going to have people come up with their unique and fun super pack names so some of them i came up with like the the league to support yellow meeples something like that so there's just a funny t- funny type of thing that they can put on the, that thing, that the card. And so we'll actually put that on the card and the card will actually say um, somewhere on it. We haven't finalized the graphic design of the card quite yet, but it'll say, you know, this card paid for or purchased for whatever their name is. Now, again, that name is going to be subject to our own approval. We don't want anything that's crude or offensive to anybody. We don't want anything that's off color humor or things like that. Uh, but um, we'll work with people if they come up with a name we don't necessarily approve. We'll see if we can modify and tweak it to make it work for the game. And then the uh, second level where you can actually influence the game is at $155. You can buy into creating a candidate for the game. So those candidate cards I mentioned, they really like with the special player power and abilities. Um, those right now, the cards like say candidate one, candidate two, candidate three, they don't have names. So one of the things is these backers are going to be able to do is name the candidate. They're going to be able to give things like a background for the candidate. Say the candidate is a – they want the candidate to be a senator from some state. So they'll be able to give like a title for that, like senator so-and-so or maybe general so-and-so if they want to have them have a military background or like a reverend if they're going to be a, a preacher from a church or something like that. So any kind of title they want to give that candidate, any kind of name they want to give that candidate, and then they're going to actually help describe the physical appearance and or supply pictures that we can kind of work with our artists to create something resembling their own physical likeness within the game. Um, it's not going to be a direct caricature uh, because some of the reasons that, that we have pointed out in, in other articles won't go into a lot here Um but uh, I can point you to a League of Game Makers article where we talk about why we're not going to do a direct caricature of a, of a person in the game. However, they're going to have a lot of control and say over what the character is going to look like. So there you go. You got a couple, if you're listening in, at home and, and thinking, you know, you might want to get into this. There's a couple of different options for you to really dig in. Now, speaking of that, if someone at home or on, at their desk or in their car. I don't know where you listen to this. Wherever you listen to this, if you're at home right now and this person is on the fence about pledging, what can you say to them to just go do it right now? Just right now, go make a pledge. What can you say to them? Well, 
I would say to them, uh, first of all, the game has a very good chance of not even being made if we don't make our funding. So we have to make the $35,000 funding to get the 1,500 copy print run. Without that, we don't have the game at all. And our, our dad's game he's been working on forever won't, won't make it into stores, won't, make, won't see the light of day. So we're pretty passionate about it for that reason because we want to see his dream come to reality. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't know our dad, don't really care about that. So, and we understand that. But the, the other thing is it's, it's a really great game, and, and a lot of people play it. A lot of people enjoyed it. Um, so now is your chance to go and pledge and get the game Right now, um, there's a couple of things, that, advantages you have right now. You have the advantage of getting it for cheaper than the MSRP. So the, like I said, the MSRP is going to be $65 in the end. You can get it for $54 right now. And that MSRP may even go up because if we hit some stretch goals, we have a lot of good stretch goals planned. They're going to actually upgrade the components of the game quite a bit. So it may actually be a more valuable game in the end, and we may set the MSRP for $70 depending on how many of these stretch goals we have. Uh, I can't really predict that. Um, but we will not raise the price, base price of the game no matter what. So you're going to get it for $54 no matter how many stretch goals we hit. Uh, the other things, like I said, the, the options to influence the game, to have you know, uh, control over a character in the game, to have a super fun super pack name from your um, imagination in the game, and, and then to really help us develop what stretch goals we want to add to the game. Throughout the course of the game, we have some ideas. Uh, throughout the course of the campaign, I should say, we have some ideas on, we have a lot of ideas on upgrades, but we have some ideas on how to include the backers in our um, process of selecting what upgrades to do. So it may come out to, we may put out a poll to say, would you rather see a thicker cardstock in the upgrade or would you rather see um, what a thicker chipboard tokens or something like that where we kind of leave it up to the backers to decide what kind of upgrade they want to see. Um. And adding adding to that briefly, um, I would also say a couple other thoughts that came to mind is one, uh, just looking at the the development and refinement of the game. A lot of games are one to two years. Typically, two years is probably pretty average for development. This game has been in development for four years now. You know, on one hand, that may say, "Oh, you just dragged it on," but no, it's it's what I talked about earlier. It's we we take feedback from people seriously. We've hit numerous conventions. We've literally play tested with hundreds and hundreds of people receiving feedback every time, making making uh, you know observations, taking notes. Um, tweaking, tweaking, refining, refining all along the way. So it's a very well refined product. And, um, you know, I, if, if, uh, I could provide you quote after quote after quote on those feedback forms of people just praising the game. But more so than that, we have it currently out to 10 or 11, um, reviewers. By the time these, the Kickstarter goes live, those reviewers should have their formal reviews published. Um, but we've already had two different reviewers reach out to us and personally tell us here it is September. And they personally told us that it's the favorite game they've played all year, and it's towards the end of the year. So that that has impact. We had one guy mention the he was just blown away by the amount of balance and strategic depth in the game. Um, so you know those factors. That's not just us saying it; those are other actual official reviewers, so to speak, that are saying the same thing. So there's a lot of um, third party testament to the the, the depth um, and greatness of the game, if you will. Well, there you go. If you're unconvinced now, I don't know what's going to do it for you. Now, as we start to to wrap up um, a little bit, we're nearing the end of the hour here, a little over perhaps. Um, is there anything that we have not covered that you want to make sure gets out there, gets said or talked about? I would just say one thing um, that we have not mentioned yet that we're going to be doing with the campaign as well. It's going to be a hopefully a fun um, little challenge that we put out there is because of the political campaign theme, um, we thought it would be fun to have a challenge for our backers. So we want to see if we can get um, the number of backers in each state equal to or greater than the number of electoral votes in that state. So, for instance, we would like to see if we can get 55 backers from California or more. We could like to see if we can get at least three backers from Wyoming or more, or 20 backers from Illinois or more, or six backers from Arkansas or more. So if we can fill up the entire map of the United States with the number of electoral votes equal to the number of backers or, or higher, we have a little special prize we're going to send out to all of our backers. And so that's another fun challenge thing we have going on. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a good motivation if you live in a state with not a lot of people in it, like, you know, Montana or Wyoming or 
I don't know, lots of other states where you got like <laughs> two electoral votes. Alaska. If you're Alaska. in Alaska, please pledge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The one person who's listening three. in Alaska. We need three people from Alaska. So uh, come out and back us. I, are there three people in Alaska? <laughs> Might be the same family, but you know, hey. <laughs> All three yeah. of you pledge. Do it. Um, as we just to just wrap up here, if uh, if someone has been inspired by anything they've heard over the last hour and they want to reach out and communicate with you, uh, what are good ways to reach you? Where are you on the intertubes? We are on Facebook, uh, Cosmic Wombat Games on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Wombat Games. Uh, our website, www.cosmicwombatgames.com. Uh, you can email either myself, uh, Jeff, at CosmicWombatGames.com, or Nathan is Nathan at CosmicWombatGames.com. Um, what else do we have? I think that's about it as far as how you can reach it up Probably to us. Probably sums it up, yeah. Find us at a convention. We're at yeah. a lot of conventions. Well, there you have it. Um, if you're listening, oh, and the League of Game Makers, and the League of Game Makers. So, there you have it. Thank you very much um, for for joining me this evening. Now, if you are listening at home and you are on the fence, just go to the campaign trail Kickstarter page right now and check it out. It's a beautiful looking game, uh, totally reasonably priced, and they need your support so that they can make this awesome game from their family into stores because that's just a one hell of a story. So um, thank you very much, Nathan. And thank you very much, Jeff, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. This has been uh, the game of crowdfunding interview edition. And I have been your host, Paul Koska. Thank you. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find Broken Prism Reviews, a YouTube channel bringing you game reviews in three parts, unboxing, express gameplay, and a quick rundown of what makes the game stand out. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.